And uh, as you're seated, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 and verse 37 is where we're going to begin. Okay, Acts chapter 2, let's begin reading in verse 37. And I think, uh, I think we could say that Acts 2 is a story about how great God is. Uh, the work that he does in the lives of those that he redeems. Uh, that work begins with uh, a wounding that leads to a healing. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, <clears throat> the word of God says, When the people heard this, that is the gospel as presented by Peter on the day of Pentecost in the power of the Spirit. Okay, so there was a proclamation of the coming of Christ, of the crucifixion of Christ, laced with Old Testament text that tied together a larger story of what God is doing and how He is redeeming people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to create this newer and greater Israel of which we today are a part. And then that body, He fills with the power of His Spirit so that it can be His light unto the world, His burning bush that people can come to and see the glory of God. Now, verse 37, after Peter <clears throat> finishes sharing what Christ has done and their responsibility for His death because of their sin, it says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will experience Pentecost. This promise is for you and your children, and for, and I love this phrase, for all who are far off. Okay, this, that the gospel is not a national issue. It is international. It's not local. It's global in its reach. So it's for all who are far off. And this morning, you may come into the house of God thinking, you know what, I have issues in my life, I have struggles in my life, and I feel far off from God because of my sin. Okay, the good news for you this morning is that Jesus came for those that were near and for those that are far off. Okay, so please, as you listen, remember that there is a far-reaching scope of the gospel that is presented here. He goes on then to say, it is for all whom the Lord our God will call. Which is to say this, there is a human response to the gospel and there is a divine initiative in the gospel. Both of those things are working together to build the kingdom of God, the body of Christ, the church. Okay, so both of those things work together. Human response, God intervening and overcoming our weaknesses so that we actually are effective in the cause that He has so graciously called us to. Verse 40, with many other words, He warned them and pleaded with them. Folks, I, when I read those verses, here's what I say to myself. I say, God, is that the way I interact with people in my sphere of influence? Do I warn them and plead with them? Okay, that's what the apostles... When the early church was filled with the Spirit, you know what? It made them people that warned people, that gave them a truthful explanation of the gospel, and it also pleaded with them and begged with them, be reconciled to God. That's the heart of the early church. Save yourselves by faith and repentance, implied, I think, from the early verses, from this corrupt generation. You would say to yourself, okay, how about that go over in our culture? Well, what is the response that you would expect from that? I would say this, apart from the Spirit of God, people would turn away from that kind of a message. 
People turn away from warnings and, and from strong prodings about the necessity of faith in Christ. That's not popular terminology in our day. But when the Spirit of God came in the first century, what happened? He overcame objections to the truth by the power of God through the work of the Spirit and people were born into this new family. That's what Acts 2 is about. The Spirit of God comes. He transforms a group of people. They go out into the world as the light of God and the world around them begins to change under the power of the Gospel of Christ. I mean, that's, that's what this is about. Verse 41, those that accepted His message were baptized, that is, they were they were identified publicly with those other believers in Jesus. They participated in an initiatory rite that identified them with the death, burial, and resurrection of a glorious Savior. That's, that's the story that's here. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, I'm going to take just a quick detour. Okay, if you go back to the book of Exodus and read about what we talked about last Sunday, the first Pentecost. Okay, Moses comes down from the mountain, right? With the tablets and he finds the people of Israel reveling and worshiping at a golden calf, right? He destroys the law of God. The tab- he, he throws them down out of just disgust and out of, out of a sense of horror. And then there is a time of judgment that ends up with 3,000 people dead. Okay, that's what the presence of God did in the book of Exodus. Okay, it is a, a stunning and strong passage. What's amazing to me is that at this greater Pentecost, what happens? God has not come to destroy. What has He come? He has come to seek and to save. And on this greater Pentecost, what happens? 3,000 are swept into the kingdom of God forgiven by the blood of Christ, and made part of something brand new. And it is that something new that I would like us to focus our attention on this morning. It begins in verse 42. Those that were added to the church, about 3,000 in number, along with 120 from chapter 1, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs... <clears throat> were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Okay, that is the story of the launching of the early church. Okay, and verses 42 to 47 tell us what this transformed group of people looked like. It tells us how they functioned. I I don't think that this text intends to be an exhaustive list of everything the church did, but I think it is a representative list of what the church valued. Okay, and you'll find as you read through the book of Acts that on four or five occasions, Luke is going to make kind of a summary statement of what God is doing. Okay, and this is the first summary statement that Luke's going to give us. This, this, and this is happening. And then all of a sudden he says, and here's an overview of what God was doing in his body, the church, as it reached out to the ancient world. Okay, so this morning what I'd like us to do is to look at this 
passage of Scripture. I'm just going to focus our attention this morning on verse 40, 42. Okay? And I want to ask the question, when the Spirit of God came on the early church via Pentecost, and the Spirit of God took up residence in the life of individual believers, that work of the Spirit spreading and settling on each one, how did that affect those people? What, what kind of priorities and values did they adopt? Okay, what did they, as verse 42 says, they devoted themselves to? Okay, what did they realize they needed to make a shift in my life from this value and I need to now be committed or devoted to this instead? What were the things that the early church saw that were so important, so valuable for their growth as the body of Christ? So we'll look at Luke's summary statement to try to discover what were the commitments the priorities, or if you will, practices of the early church that changed them and made them such a powerful influence in the ancient world. And I think from this verse we can identify four things that they were devoted to. Okay, the first one is this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Okay? The Word of God took center stage in the early church. Okay? And if we are going to be a strong church... That is biblical in its orientation. Empowered by the Spirit of God. I think this is one thing that we need to get straight before God. That we need to be a church that is devoted to learning the Word of God. Okay, now we've talked about this back in January. The, the, the value and place of Scripture in our life. Here we come to it in a practical setting. Where those who have been changed by the Spirit of God now have this new set of commitments, priorities values, things that they love, and they devote themselves to these things. I think if you, go, if you go back into Peter's discussion with them about the gospel that starts in about verse uh, 14 and following, this sermon that he gives, you'll find that it is, it is a sermon that is laced with Old Testament truth. Primarily, primarily it is laced with texts that point forward to the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ that they had seen in their lifetime. Okay, so the, this focus on the apostles' teaching is probably a focus on gospel truth. Okay, what are they learning? They're learning how Jesus had come to fulfill all of the prophecies of the Old Testament related to the Messiah. So Matthew 5.16 says this. Jesus says, he says, I did not come to destroy the law. I came to, remember the word he uses? I came to fulfill it. All right, that is, I came to be all that those Old Testament texts are pointing towards. Okay, now what does the early church do? They devote themselves to understanding those portions of Scripture that most primarily and fundamentally point to the glorious work of Jesus Christ. Okay, that becomes a focus that grounds them in glorious truth. Okay, and here's what we can say. We can say that for the early church, gospel truth, Biblical truth mattered. Okay? Paul will say it this way in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 15. He says to Timothy, Commit yourself to the Scriptures that are able to make you wise for salvation and for Christian living. Okay? So the early church carved out times when they would be together, and I think it happens in two ways. It says they're doing it in the temple courts and they're doing it in the context of homes. Both ways. There are public meetings where they study the Word of God, and there are private, smaller meetings where the Word of God is just part of their experience. Now, the question that I want to ask you is this. Did that 
focus on truth make the early church a boring group of people? Okay, were they simply intellectual, only concerned about getting things right on paper? Because sometimes that's what we can do as a church. We can come to a place where we're concerned about doctrinal accuracy, but we lose the heart of true believers. Meaning, we know the truth. We, we know exactly what God says about such and such a thing. But when people look at our lives, there's nothing about us that is compelling. Okay, when I get to the end of this, this, uh, this set of verses, verse 47, it says, The Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. Which is to say what? That the message of the gospel that they were proclaiming was not dry, sterile facts. It was a life-altering truth. Okay, there was something about them that was changing under the power and presence of the Word of God. And, and, and as I read for you in verse uh, 46 and 47, it says that they were together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying favor with all the people. Okay, so it, it's impossible to read through this account, and say, you know what? These people were simply minds, okay? They were just thinkers. Now, these people were very intellectually sound in terms of the Scripture, but they were also very emotive and emotional in their experience of God. So the truth of God comes to do what? It comes to rescue us, but it also comes to change us. It comes to deliver us from sadness in our sin and give us joy in the salvation that God has provided. And so I think it's important that as we look at this idea of focusing on biblical truth, that, that we understand that, that God, through His truth, was getting a hold of their lives, their lives were being changed, and they became a joyful representation of God's work in the midst of the city of Jerusalem. Because there's something very powerful was happening. And I think the warning that emerges out of this for me is something like this, okay? It's easy for us to focus on getting the truth right. It's easy to focus on what we know. But I think we have to be careful that, that we, we don't become people who know the truth, but are not committed to putting it into practice. Okay? And I think we could say something like this. Truth that doesn't change you, that doesn't affect me, is not really that valuable. Okay? In fact, it may become a deceit that I know these things, but these things have never changed my life. In the early church, I think we can look and see that they were people who learned the truth of God, but they were also people who lived the truth of God. Why? Because the Spirit of God was inside, regenerating, enlivening, and changing them. Okay, by the power of this amazing truth. So sometimes, as the church, we need to work on closing the gap between the truth or theology that we talk about and the truth and theology that we actually practice. Okay? Because if I know truth, but don't put it into practice, if I talk about truth, but don't allow it to transform me, what am I? I'm a hypocrite. Okay, I'm someone that knows the right things, but it has never affected me. It's never changed me. And I believe this. I believe the world that we live in is looking for people that are not simply devoted to an intellectual understanding of the gospel, but it's looking for people who are actually changed. I mean, it, they're going to look and say, you know what, if that can happen in front of me, if I can see someone's life so deeply affected, then I would be attracted to that. The problem is that a lot of times we're, we're, we know the truth, but because we don't put it into practice, we're, we're, we're dead, we're, we're unattractive, there's nothing appealing and joyful about the church. God aims to come 
and change us and to transform us so that we don't sound hollow when we talk about love that we know but never practice. Okay? So God wants us to be as this church was. They were devoted to the truth, but the truth that they were devoted to by the Spirit, it was changing them. And, and people could look and see, they could see the difference that was coming in their lives. And I believe this with all my heart. I believe that is what the world is looking for. And I think it's why Jesus said to his disciples, he said, blessed are you, not only if you know these things, but if you what? If you do them. Okay? And so he says to us, the wise person, Matthew chapter 7, is the person that knows the word of God. That's good. But that can make you simply this, more intellectual than other people. You can know things they don't know. The wise person is the person that does what? That takes that truth from God and makes it the bedrock of their life. And they build a glorious life for the glory of God on top of that foundation. Okay, that's what God aims to do. Okay, he aims to, to change us by this devotion to truth. So the first thing we see of this church is they were devoted to learning, to knowing the word of God. It mattered. So they got together and they, 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 they got it into their minds and they prayed it onto their hearts. Okay, it's that kind of an idea. So my first encounter with God's Word is what? It's intellectual. It's a mind battle, but what does He want to do? He wants to take it by the power of the Spirit into your heart where your life is changed, where you become a new creature in Christ. Okay, so fight the tendency to be merely intellectual. This church was full of joy, thriving in the life of the Spirit. Signs and wonders were being done in their midst. God was gaining attention for them because the Word that they had heard what did it do first? It, it damaged them. They cried out and said, Brothers, what do we need to do? And then Peter said to them, Respond to the truth you're hearing. And the Spirit of God will also take a residence in your heart. He'll transform you. And this will begin to make sense to you. And He'll make you a light to your world. So they were a learning church. Now, second part of the verse says this. They devoted themselves, that is, committed themselves also to the fellowship. This is interesting to me. This word that means to share or to have in common. Okay? And it's called a fellowship. Okay? That's, what is it? That's Paul's definition of the early church. A place that learned the word of God, but a place where people deeply loved each other and shared life together. Okay? That's, that's what the church is. It's a place where people become a, a community. And that's the idea I want to drive at this morning. They became devoted to community. Now, can we be honest this morning and make this observation? You and I live in a culture that values individuals more than it values community. So if I'm going to be a truly devoted Christian, what must I be? I must be, at some level, counter-cultural. Okay, I'm going to strive to live in a way that is different than the world around me tends to live. And can we be honest? A little more clear? I must live differently than I am prone to live. Okay, I am prone to live an individualistic life. My natural tendency is to seek my happiness. Okay, and I say that to my own shame because that can influence my family relationships, people that are very close to me, because sometimes I'm more concerned about my own progress and well-being than I am about the well-being of others. In the early church, that was not the case. When the Spirit of God came, you know what He did? He, he birthed them by regeneration into a new community, and He gave them affections of community. That's what He did. So that this 
this radical individualism that is normative, not only in our generation, folks, please understand this. It's not an American problem. It's not a modern problem. We can go back into the Gospels and look at the disciples of Jesus and what did they wrestle with? They wrestled with a fierce individualism, right? When they thought about the kingdom, they imported selfish motives into it. And so they said to Jesus, hey, when we get into the kingdom, can I... You remember the story, right? Can I sit on my right hand and I sit on my left and on your left? Jesus takes them into the Garden of Gethsemane to lead them in a season of prayer for His well-being and benefit. And what do they do? They fall asleep. They weren't radically committed and radically devoted to the needs of others. They were in it for themselves. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. What are they saying? Are you now going to restore the kingdom? Is it finally going to be about who? About us. Okay, that... So, so as you wrestle with it, don't wrestle with it in a way that simply tries to beat yourself up and produce guilt. Reckon with it. Okay? Understand. Okay, we all have a tendency to be like children at Christmas saying, this is mine. Okay? Shared a story with you uh, from when our daughter Jessica was younger. A precious thing she would do at Christmas, she would stuff all of her gifts under her legs out of absolute fear that her two older sisters all right, would take some of her stuff what was she doing? She's just expressing it's human nature. We didn't teach her to do that. Or did we? Right? I mean, where did they get that? Oh, it's sinful human nature. It's innate. And not observed? Okay, now the bottom line is they've observed it in us too. And in the church, what do we have to do? We have to fight this. And it is an American posture. Okay, let's be honest. America celebrates the individual. God celebrates the community. When God saved you by His grace, if you've trusted Christ, He brought you into a new family. Okay, the church is called the family of God. It is called the body of Christ. It is called the city of God. It is called an army. You know what it is? It's a group of people that are seeking to achieve the same goals and objectives together. Right? That's, that's what the church is. And these people devoted themselves to what? The fellowship. The group of people who had common values, common loves, common desires, common goals, common aims in their life. They, they just, they got together because they were together. I would challenge you to read through this text that I read to you, verse 42 to 47. Look through this text, okay? And I'll challenge you to look for this. Look for personal pronouns because here's what you'll find. You will find that 12 or 13 times there are Plural pronouns. Plural. Because that's what the church is about. One time, one time there's a singular pronoun, and I think it actually depends on the translation you're looking at, and it is the person that they, you may give to him who has need. That's the only time in this whole text that's describing this summary statement by Luke about the early church. One time does he address individuals. The whole rest of the time. You know what he's talking about? Us together. Life together. That's what God wants to be our passion. And, and I'm just telling you, if you're like me, I'm just, I'll assume you're not as strange as I am, but you're, you're probably like me in certain ways that you, you wrestle with this wanting what you want so badly that you'll damage people around you, your own wife, your own husband, your own family, because of what you want. Okay, and it's, just, it's something that we, we have to fight. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2. 
when he talks about the formation of the early church, verse 10 of, of, of Ephesians 2, I'll just read these for you. He says, we are His workmanship. We, we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And I think the implication is clearly, together, there are things that God prepared for us to do, Paul says. Verse 19, he says, Consequently, as a result of this conversion experience, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. Okay, which is to say what? The church is a community. It's, it's the city of God. It's the place where He dwells. We are fellow citizens with God's people and members, I love this statement, of God's household. Okay, your salvation is about something larger than your personal well-being. God brought you into a family, and in that family, you have certain God-given privileges. You're part of a family. And you also have what? God-given responsibilities. Okay, and God, God presses this image. They, it says, they devoted themselves to the fellowship, to a group of people. Who is that group of people? It's the body of Christ. It's the city of God. It's where people come together. And begin to enjoy life in a way that is radically different from our individualistic orientation. Because when God saved you, He placed you into a new family. Okay? He placed you into a new city. You continue to live, you know, I continue to live at 11 Lauren Drive. But when I get saved, God put me in a new family. I have new responsibilities. Something I had to get used to when I got married was this. That when I make decisions, my decisions affect another individual now. And when we had children, after having three girls, you start to realize my decisions affect my wife and my kids. Their well-being, their concerns are my concerns. I thought when they got married, that would stop. I was wrong. But when they get off to college and the house is empty, life is a lot easier. I was wrong. Why? What are we? We are, by virtue of them being born in our house and me being married to my wife, we are family. And folks, that's the church. That's the church. And often we, we, we undervalue this. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. They loved the people of God. And they felt responsible for the people of God. And they poured themselves out for the people of God. They were devoted. It was a new commitment. It was a new change. It was a new family. A study was done a few years back on prisoners of war looking at the question of what are the best tactics to dehumanize and destroy the will, to break the spirit of a prisoner of war. And they tried a lot of things. A lot of wicked, torturous things. To dehumanize, to destroy, to break the spirit. You know what they found to be the most effective thing? And I'll read this for you so that I get this straight. Right, the findings revealed that they did not break down from physical deprivation and torture nearly as quickly as they did from solitary confinement or from disrupted friendships caused by frequent changing of personnel. Attempts to get the prisoners divided in their attitude towards one another proved to be the most successful method of discouraging them. 
Okay? What did the, the wicked people that ran the prison camps that sought to demoralize people, what did they find out? They found out if you can separate people and get them to despise one another, you will destroy their spirit. And folks, I want to tell you something. That is what the evil one is trying to do in, his, in the church of Christ. He wants to demoralize the church. He wants to kill the spirit of the church. You know how he does it? He does it by breaking up relationships. That's why Paul says on a number of occasions in the New Testament, you'll find this, whenever it says you give Satan a base of operation or a foothold in your life, you know what it's usually related to? It's usually related to brokenness in the context of marriage. It's usually related to brokenness in the context of relationships in the body of Christ, Ephesians 4. Okay, and what does Paul say? Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't let it break your relationships. Why? Because if you do, you will give the evil one a foothold, a base of operation. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. You know what I assume that means? I assume that that means they protected the fellowship. And if you want to destroy the church, if you want to destroy your relationship to the body of Christ, separate yourself from it. Isolate. Let your, let your picture of the church be a bunch of marbles in a jar that touch, but never change one another. Okay, and the sad truth is this. For many of us, that's what the church has become. It's not a place where we are fully integrated, where we are so much on each other and involved with each other that we become inseparable, devoted to the fellowship. We're more like marvels. And this, I think, is where the church has to be honest today and say, my tendency is to treat my relationships not only in the church, but also in families, also in the workplace. It's a cultural issue that affects the body of Christ. So we tend to not have deep relationships where we really affect each other. We're like hard pieces of glass stuck in a jar together and we say, okay, that's church. Not by God's definition, it's not. It may be by ours, but it is not by God's. Okay, and, and the early church understood we're a fellowship defined as a family, defined as a city, defined as an army. Those are the pictures, a body. Where what? Where when one goes down... It affects everybody. Okay, but when you're living an individualistic life, someone goes down, I'm going to tell you this, it won't bother you. It's one of the tests you can apply. How do I feel when I know a brother or sister in my life is struggling? Do I feel the need to reach out and get involved in their life? The bottom line is we tend to be more like marbles. Okay? Touching, but not really giving up anything. Not really affecting, leaving an impact on others. God wants us to be, the early church filled with the Spirit. You know what they did? They devoted themselves to this thing called the fellowship. And it is a, it is a powerful, law. I could go on and on. You're thinking, yeah, we know. 2 Timothy 4, 9, here's what Paul said, writing to Timothy. He said, Timothy, come to me quickly. You know what's amazing? 11 verses later, he cannot let it go. He says, Timothy, come before winter. Who is that? That's the man that we look at in the New Testament as the strongest man. And what's he saying? I cannot survive without the fellowship. Okay, it was, it was just part of, read through Romans chapter 16. The whole chapter is devoted to what? Relationships. This person blessed me in this way and say thank you to this person for me. He goes on and on. Under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, 
Many would look and say, he's wasting pages of Scripture. Tell us something new. Paul, tell us something else. What do you say? No, these relationships mattered. The fellowship of the body of Christ was vital. And, and I, I would argue this point, and I say it to you, I, please understand, I don't, I just want you to think about this, okay? I don't believe that Sunday morning is in and of itself an adequate commitment to the body of Christ. I believe God wants more from us than that. Okay, I believe He wants us committed to each other in a way that we, we start to live in this way. Okay, gospel, committed to truth, and community. Okay, but a community that is, 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 is something that's not simply a Bible study, but it's where we share life together. It's where we pray together and get involved with one another. So I just I want to challenge you to start to think about how can I engage myself and it may be unofficial. Okay, but how can I engage myself in relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ where we are cultivating sustained communities within the larger picture of what God is doing here? Okay, and I, just, I say it to you. Look, at they devoted themselves to the fellowship. And you're going to find next Sunday morning as I go into this text in, in more detail, there was a whole lot going on that was absolutely stunning, beautiful, attractive. Because they care for each other. And sometimes we wonder, why is witness so difficult? Listen, in isolation, Christian living, I think, is virtually impossible. God did not call you to live the Christian life in isolation. He placed you in a family because He expects us to live this life in the context of community. He doesn't launch us out there alone. He saves you and by the Spirit bursts you into something that is radical and beautiful and new. Now the next thing, and I think the next two statements, and I'll just hit these quickly. The next two statements, I think, are ways that we can start cultivating a commitment to truth and community. A way that we can become, as the book called Total Church calls, gospel communities. Okay, where we love the truth and learn to live it together in the context of community. It says, they devoted themselves to the fellowship and then to the breaking of bread and prayer. Okay, and I think these second two are ways that the first two can be done. In fact, they're practical ways that it happens. Okay? So they devoted themselves to sharing meals together. That's, that's what the text says. Okay? For me, that's profoundly encouraging. Okay? They got together to eat meals. Why in our culture is that even valued? To be honest, okay, ask yourself this question. When's the last time that I had another family in my house to do what these people did? Okay, and I know that's pointed. Okay, and one of you is going to blame one in the home, one's going to blame another. I'm not concerned about that, okay? But here's what I will tell you. In the early church, they shared life together. They were together. They didn't assume that they could go it alone after Sunday morning. Okay, you can't do this. All, we're going to try it this morning. You'll see how hard it is, okay, to have church and a meal together. Okay? Hopefully you'll stay and enjoy it too. Okay, but I, I offer you this challenge. In the early church, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And the idea is twofold and usually combined in many cases. Okay? They enjoyed a meal and had the Lord's Supper. 
Okay? That's what they did. Matthew 26, 26. Jesus sat down with the disciples for the Passover meal. And then he took the bread and he took the cup. In Acts, you can read through the book of Acts, you'll find on a number of occasions what do they do. They get together and enjoy a meal and fellowship and the Lord's table. Okay, so there's this, this beautiful thing that floats around a concept that the book of Luke calls table fellowship. Okay, because table fellowship, having someone sitting at your table says something to that person about them and it says something to the world about your relationship with that person. Did Jesus find that out? Oh yeah. He went to the house of Zacchaeus and what did he find out? They came outside and said, he's eating with publicans and sinners. Why did that bother him? Because he was in the same room with them? No. Because the implications of having a meal together was you approve of that person or you have affection for them or you love them or you care about them. They got it. They got it. They got what sometimes we don't get. That this idea of life together. Now I'm gonna, it could be at a restaurant. Okay, it doesn't... But I, I think there's something precious about this idea of it being in the home. There's, there's power in this. Psalm 23, verses 4 and 5. You prepare a table before me where? In the presence of my enemy. Table fellowship was a means of God saying to the psalmist, I love you and will provide for you in the midst of your troubles and struggles. That's what he was saying. When I, in the commentary I read, I was like, whoa. Luke chapter 15. The prodigal comes, son comes home and the dad says, hey, I love you a lot. Enjoy the rest of your day. No, you know what he does? He says, son, I love you. And I'm going to prove that in a way that actually will be irritating to your older brother. I'm going to serve you a meal. What's the point? The point is that meal said, I love you. I accept you. I will protect you. I care about you. Folks, that's... When we share our stuff when we share our life okay it's it's valuable and precious and powerful and unfortunately we often don't experience it if you go down in this text and we'll go down in it next week there is these guys get serious man they start selling things to help someone else out that's how devoted their fellowship and meal taking was and they did it on a habitual basis. One writer commented and said this early church, they look like newlyweds. Okay, meaning what? They just always need to be together. They couldn't stand being apart. Because there was something powerful happening in the context of this devotion to sharing meals together. It wasn't simply a meal. And then it says they devoted themselves to praying together. The word literally means to prayers, plural. Okay, most translations have it, they devoted themselves to prayer, right? I think probably, the English Standard Version, I think, has prayers. Because that's a literal translation. Well, what does that mean? Well, prayers, in this time, you'll, you'll find as you read ahead in the Gospel of Acts, and I hope you do this, I hope you read ahead. Read through this book a number of times as we study through it. Okay? What did they do? They went to the temple at the time of what? Prayer. They had committed opportunities to seek the face of God alone, corporate, uh, alone, and then also together. It, it, was, it was part of the early church. If you go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus says to them in verse 4, wait in Jerusalem until you receive the power of the Spirit. That's day 40 after the resurrection. Pentecost comes on day 50. 
Verse 14 of chapter 1, what were they doing for those 10 days? Here's what it says. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary. They, they sensed the importance of touching the throne of God, not only individually, but together. They reached out to God. They bore one another's burdens. They were devoted to habits that would make the early church very very strong. And one writer has said it this way in a book called Everything by Prayer. Beautiful little book. My mother-in-law, if you've ever talked to her, she's probably told you, you should read this book. All right, it says that the early church was birthed through prayer. In the upper room, they met and they prayed. And guess what? God came. God came by the Spirit. These are the simple steps of life together. And folks, I'm going to tell you this. I have a whole lot of books in my office on small groups and people getting together and what it takes to do it. And I get exhausted by it. Okay? But I believe in it. And it's not something that in our church, in the way that I would like to see it by any stretch, has taken hold. Be quite a, probably one of my greatest discouragements as a pastor is this. That we as a church tend to be marbles in a jar. And that's not good. It's not good. And it's not what God intends. So my challenge is this. How do we become people who love or devoted to, that's the word here, committed to the word of God, to fellowship, to meals together, and to prayer? That's what they did. That's what they loved. And I, I think what it's going to take for many of us is a simple evaluation of our lives, a simple, honest question. Am I really living in the church? Okay, I mean, is my relationship to the body of Christ not what Pastor Tim wants it to be? Because I'm going to tell you what, what I want it to be really doesn't matter. It doesn't. But I do believe this. I do believe that what God wants it to be matters. In fact, I think I can strengthen it and say what God wants it to be is simply a matter of obedience. It's what it comes down to. Just like we would hold any other principle, command, directive from Scripture and say, you know what, I have to do this. what God says. It's what God says. I, I, I would love us to be as devoted to the body of Christ as many of us are, I hope, to financial integrity, to personal purity that we would say, no, I'm not going to watch that movie. No, I'm not going to steal from my boss. I think it would be awesome if we said, I will also, on the positive side, be devoted to these kinds of things. And folks, here's what happens, okay? You get, and I'll go through this text next week. It, there is nothing bad that comes out of these kind of commitments. Okay? And you will find something glorious begins to emerge. And I believe these commitments unleash the power of the Spirit of God in your life. Because, you know what? The Spirit of God did not come to make your life better. The Spirit of God came to build the church of Christ. He gifted you for the body. He saved you to be part of a family. Okay, He put you into His household. That's what He did. That is undeniable, central, biblical truth. And we need to interrogate our hearts, I think, and just say, God, is this... 
the life I'm living in relationship to the body of Christ. And if it's not, I want to, here's the challenge I give you. The challenge I give you is this. Would you start to pray and ask God, God, how do you want me to get involved in a more effective and true way with my brothers and sisters in Christ? How do you, what do you want that to look like? I could give you prescribed plans. But if it doesn't come on your heart to say, you know what, I'm going to start interacting with some brothers and sisters. I'm going to start talking about, how about if we get together once a month to start? Okay, and some of you I've talked to personally. Actually, a lot of you I have. Okay, and I've tried to provoke you to love and good works in this way. Because I think this is what will transform our church and give a context in which the Spirit of God can begin to work in a way that we are not experiencing today. Okay, I believe that's what God wants. Okay, I believe it's what He wants. You said, Pastor Tim, why are you preaching through X? Part of it's this. Okay? We as a church, I think, are fairly loving. I think maybe at maybe some levels above average in that way. I think we understand the value of family, but I don't think we practice it. Okay? I think we tend to be marbles in a jar. Together, but not really affecting each other. That's not what God wants. I, that I can be assured of. And so I just encourage you, if you're here this morning and you, you don't know Christ and you're saying, okay, I don't even know if I want to get any closer to any of the people in this room. Okay, in fact, I'll be glad when you're done so I can get out of here. Okay. Here's the cool thing, okay? This church is made up of who? It's made up of people that heard the good news of Christ, were convicted in their heart, cried out and said, what do we need to do? Repent and be baptized. Repent. Trust in the shed blood of Christ. Be forgiven of your sin. And th this, this explanation is true of new Christians. These are not mature Christians by and large. They're new believers. But what they, they understand, they understood that they had become part of something brand new. And they devoted themselves to it in very glorious and specific ways. You will not save yourself by commitment to the body of Christ, however. Okay, I don't want you to go out here thinking, I need to be more faithful at church and then I will earn my way to heaven. Oh, no, you won't. No, you won't. Jesus Christ died on the cross and shed his shed blood so that you could have a relationship with him. Okay, that's the good news. And when you trust that, the Spirit of God comes into your life and makes you part of something that is glorious and new that we can mishandle but then we handle it properly. It is beautiful and glorious. And it is a world-changing influence. The body of Jesus Christ. Father, this morning we thank you for your word.